A young girl frantically wound in and out of the large stone statues of ancient Egyptian kings and queens. She stopped to kiss their feet and called them my people in a heavy Egyptian accent, scolding passers-by for not removing their shoes in the presence of the gods. The scene was proving to be a little awkward for her parents, as the girl was British-born, four-year-old Dorothy Eady, the statues were in the British Museum and the year was 1908. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Dorothy Eady was born in Blackheath in London, England in 1904 to a relatively modest but comfortable family. Her father, Reuben Ernest Eady, worked as a master tailor, whilst her mother, Caroline Mary Eady, stayed at home to look after Dorothy. They lived an unremarkable and peaceful few years. It was the turn of the new century and they were able to enjoy all the comforts of Edwardian life in a prosperous Britain. At the age of three, disaster struck, however, when Dorothy tripped and fell down a full flight of stairs whilst playing at home. The doctor was called to the scene and after testing for vital signs via placing a mirror and feather by her mouth, there was no hope as far as he could see and he pronounced Dorothy dead. Her parents were distraught as the doctor carried her to bed and laid her down before returning to his surgery to enlist the aid of a nurse to prepare Dorothy's body to be taken to the funeral home. Upon his return an hour later, however, much to his shock as he walked into Dorothy's room, he found the young girl perfectly alive. She was sitting up in bed and playing, chirping happily away to herself, and upon inspection appeared to have suffered no real injury. Dorothy's parents, disturbed by the chain of events, chased the doctor out of the house, all the while knocking back his concerned protestations that to the best of his knowledge, the girl had most certainly been dead when he had last seen her. As strange as this situation was, this was just the start of a series of strange events concerning their young daughter. Shortly after the accident, Dorothy began breaking down into tears. She would sit hidden under the dining table and cry to herself for hours. When asked what was wrong, she would tell her parents simply, I want to go home. Despite telling her over and over again that she already was home, her behavior went on. All the while, Dorothy insisted, despite her parents' efforts to comfort her. On one occasion, her mother finally decided to ask, Dorothy, if this is not our home, where is? To which Dorothy replied, I don't know, but I want to go there. It was also during this period of her young childhood that Dorothy began having recurring dreams of a large building with vast stone columns and wide open gardens. A lotus pool sat nestled among exotic jasmine, oleander, mimosa, dwarf chrysanthemums and mandrakes. Dorothy did not recognize any of these details at the time, however, only that the dream would come night after night. At times, Dorothy unsettled her parents when she spoke with a heavy accent foreign to her own, slipping in and out seemingly unaware to Dorothy herself. This was dangerous territory for anyone where trips to mental asylums or workhouses had been an easy answer for troubled children. But at only three years old, Dorothy was fortunate to be too young and her parents merely tried to console her when she showed signs of being upset and frustrated. 
When Dorothy was four years old, her parents, unable to find anyone to look after her, took her along with them on an outing to the British Museum. Dorothy was, as expected by her parents, difficult work in the museum. As any normal young child of four years of age, she showed little signs of interest in the exhibits and towed around behind them as they did their best to keep her amused. As they entered the Egyptian exhibits, however, Dorothy suddenly and, much to her parents' surprise, became wildly enthused at the surrounding works of art. She ran quickly in and out, weaving through the large statues of the Egyptian gods and bent down to kiss their feet. She spoke angrily at other visitors for wearing their shoes in the presence of the gods. Somewhat embarrassed at their child's behaviour, they pulled Dorothy away and as they did so, she spotted a mummy in a display case. Dorothy fell silent immediately, walked over to the glass tomb and sat down, refusing to move and staring blankly at the preserved face of the ancient Egyptian. Her mother and father, bemused but at least relieved that their daughter was causing no more commotion, left her alone as she would not respond when they spoke to her and would not budge from the floor in front of the case. Half an hour later they returned to collect Dorothy and when exasperated at trying to get her to move, her mother scooped her up from the ground. Enraged, Dorothy yelled out, Leave me alone, these are my people. Her mother later stated that her voice was like that of a strange old woman rather than that of a child and was so startled she actually dropped her daughter to the floor. After more commotion, they managed to drag Dorothy away from the museum, kicking and screaming. It was to be, however, another three years before any of the events at the British Museum would begin to make any small amount of sense to the family. In 1911, Dorothy was now seven years old. Originally, her behaviour was thought to be a passing phase, the struggles of raising a small child, However, her peculiar outbursts had remained a constant. One day, whilst passing a bookshop on his way home from work, Reuben stopped in and picked up an edition of The Children's Encyclopedia by Arthur Mee, a popular serialised encyclopedia that ran from 1908 to 1964. In this particular edition, there was an article on the Rosetta Stone which enthralled Dorothy. Her parents commented on how the volume was constantly to be found open at the article and often with a magnifying glass lying next to it which Dorothy used to try to read the writing from the images on the page. When her mother asked her why she was trying to read the etched words as they were not in English, Dorothy replied, I know it, I've forgotten it, but perhaps I might remember it. Shortly after, Dorothy finally made a discovery that would put an end to years of frustration. Whilst reading a magazine of her father's, Dorothy came across a photograph of the Temple of Seti I, an ancient Egyptian temple built for the pharaoh Seti, the son of Ramesses I, in Abydos, the capital of Upper Egypt, seven miles west of the Nile. From the moment she spotted the picture, a wave of satisfying understanding flooded over her. She quickly sprung up and rushed to tell her parents of her discovery. This, she pointed to the photograph, this is my home. However, things were not quite right in the photo. 
Dorothy immediately pointed out that the gardens were missing and included details such as the trees and vast lotus gardens that had existed thousands of years before the ruin was rediscovered. The same happened later when she discovered another photograph, this time of Seti himself, mummified but recognisable to Dorothy as a man she had known well. Again, her parents dismissed her insistence in exasperated tones, but still Dorothy adamantly told them that she had known him well and he had been a nice and kind man. While still utterly puzzling for her parents, Dorothy at last had an answer as to why she had felt such a draw to Egypt since she was three years old. Her story was still incomplete, but the fog was rising in her mind and she gave herself to learning as much as she could of her homeland. The next few years were no easier for Dorothy. Despite her newly made discoveries, she was still acting oddly according to what her parents expected of her. She refused to wear shoes and would walk barefoot at every opportunity, begrudging the times that her parents enforced footwear onto her. At her Sunday school, she told her teacher that Christianity was nothing but a pale imitation of the ancient Egyptian religion, which ended in the first of many home visits from her teachers and pastors over the next several years. She would often visit the Catholic Church because she enjoyed the ceremony of Mass. The traditions of burning incense were something she was particularly fond of. However, when confronted by the priest on whether or not she was in fact a Catholic at all, as he thought he knew her parents, who were in fact Protestants, she explained matter-of-factly that she was not. However, Catholicism reminded her of the old religion and explained once again to an astounded priest the virtues of ancient Egyptian religion. The very next day, the priest wound up visiting her home to lecture her parents on the dangers of Dorothy's philosophies and asked that she be kept away from his church until they had successfully steered her from the path to hell. When she was expelled from her school in Dulwich for throwing a hymn book at a teacher after being scolded for refusing to sing a hymn that included the line, Curse the Swart Egyptians, her parents decided on extreme measures. They sat Dorothy down and threatened her quite gravely that if she continued such behaviours, they would send her away to a convent school in Belgium. Dorothy simply replied that that would be fine and she would simply run away. And in fact, it would be easier for her to travel to Egypt from Belgium than from England. This soon put a halt to such ideas from her parents. As she grew older, Dorothy found school tiring and from the age of 10 began to skip classes frequently, instead choosing to spend her time among the Egyptian exhibits in the British Museum. It was here that she met Ernest Wallace Budge, a respected Egyptologist and keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities at the British Museum. He taught Dorothy how to read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, setting her phrases from the Book of the Dead to translate checking them with his own work. Dorothy learned at a pace which surprised Wallace and eventually, after Dorothy had committed several hundred of the pictographs to memory, he asked her how she was able to learn so much so quickly. Dorothy stated simply that, I had known it all before, now it is simply coming back to me. This was an enjoyable period for Dorothy. With every glyph learnt, she felt she was coming one step closer to an understanding that had slipped her grasp for so many years. However, 
Just as she turned 12 years old, shortly after the First World War broke out and bombing raids became more frequent on London, the museum was closed and Dorothy was sent to Sussex to live on her aunt's farm. As headstrong as always, Dorothy rode one of the farm horses eight miles every day to the coastal town of Eastbourne, where she would sit in the library reading everything on Egypt that she could, and once again found peace in the solitude of a life 3,000 years in the past. In 1918, Dorothy returned to London, now aged 14 years old. What happens next is best explained in her own words. One night while sleeping, she experienced an event which would give her the next clue she had waited so long for. I half woke up, feeling a weight on my chest. Then I fully woke up and I saw this face bending over me with both hands on the neck of my nightdress. I recognised the face from the photo I had seen years before of the mummy Seti. I was astonished and shocked and I cried out and yet I was overjoyed. I can remember it as if it was yesterday but still it's difficult to explain. It was the feeling of something you have waited for that has come home at last. After this, Dorothy began having a recurring dream of standing in a dark room thick with the smell of incense as a decorated and stately looking man questioned her aggressively and beat her. She would wake up screaming. Her mother often rushed in to comfort her night after night. The dream meant little to Dorothy, but she knew that it yielded an important part of a memory she had lost and had spent her life so far seeking. Her parents, however, thought very differently of the situation and unsurprisingly for the time, committed her for psychological evaluations at a local mental hospital on several occasions. However, all of her stays were brief and never found any reason for concern. Once Dorothy turned 16, she was no longer enforced by law to attend school. She promptly took this offer and instead intensified a curriculum of self-study on all matters of Egypt that she had previously been following alone for the past several years. Her father, however, was keen to follow his own journey of self-discovery and had recently quit his job as a master tailor to pursue his hunch that moving pictures would be a lucrative business in the coming years. The family took to touring around England and Dorothy would visit the library in every city they stayed in to find new books she hadn't read previously. Eventually they settled in Plymouth, where her father built a large cinema complete with pipe organ. The Edies lived in the flat above the cinema and Dorothy would sing to the pipe organ for the audiences on the nights no films were played. As it turned out, Reuben had made an astute observation and the cinema made them a comfortable living raising them economically. Dorothy had very little love for the cinema, however, and enlisted in art school. As she grew to a young adult, so her philosophies matured and she began investigating the concepts of reincarnation, partaking in a local group dedicated to sharing their own past life stories, as well as several other spiritualist groups. When she recounted the tale of her past, the groups theorised that it was unlikely that she had been reincarnated and were more prone to believe that she had died falling down the stairs at three years old and her soul had opened her up to possession which was surely the true answer to everything that she had experienced of past memories 
filtering back to her like sunlight through a dark curtain for so many years. Dorothy thought all of this was pure guff and so, once again, consoled herself with books and returned to studying alone. And so, the years passed until finally in 1931, aged 27, Dorothy moved to London against her parents' wishes and took a job writing articles for an Egyptian public relations magazine. This was still a volatile period between Britain and Egypt. Though formerly the British Empire had declared Egyptian independence from the empire in 1922, they still occupied the country and controlled much of the affairs of the Egyptian government. Dorothy wrote articles for the magazine promoting independence for Egypt. Whilst writing for this magazine, she met Imam Abdul Maguid. Though the very next day after their chance meeting, overwatching a session in the House of Commons, Imam returned to Egypt. They continued to correspond regularly, writing letters back and forth for a year, when finally, in 1933, Imam wrote to Dorothy asking for her hand in marriage, which she accepted. Aged 29 years old, Dorothy stepped off the boat in Egypt, knelt down and kissed the ground. She had finally returned home. Unfortunately, Dorothy's marriage to Imam was not as smooth sailing as she had hoped. His family was well off and didn't take kindly to her headstrong attitude towards life. Dorothy, never one to keep the fractured details of her past life secret, also irked them. It was simply not how one should conduct themselves in Egypt as far as they were concerned, and this caused further friction with her new family. Still, she fell pregnant and gave birth to a son named Seti which placated them to a degree. It was not long after her arrival in Egypt that Dorothy would finally come to understand all of her faded memories of her past life in intimate detail. During the night, Dorothy's new husband would frequently awake, only to see Dorothy standing by the writing bureau, frantically scribbling notes onto paper under the moonlight. In later years, Dorothy spoke of these occurrences. Most of the time when I was writing, I was rather unconscious, as though I were under a strange spell, neither asleep nor awake. I was being dictated to. The gentleman who was narrating my story, his name was Hora, really took his time. He would tell me just a few words, then be absent for a fortnight or so, then come again, always at night and relate to me a couple of other lines or episodes, and after that his voice would just die away. It was as though this horror were bored to death, as if he were fulfilling a mission that filled him with loathing. Every night when he came, I felt as though something was shaking me in order to wake me, just as in a dream. When I was writing the bits and pieces of the story, I felt I was hearing a soft voice without being able to see anybody. When I was being dictated to, I felt as if I could understand every word, but later on when I started to cipher the scribblings, I found that they were quite difficult to understand. In fact, in the mornings when I woke up, everything seemed so vague, so uncertain, that if I hadn't been absolutely sure it wasn't my own handwriting, I would have said it was somebody else's. The bits and pieces were there, and when finally hurrah stopped coming, I started to piece together what looked to me like a big jigsaw puzzle. 
This lasted for almost an entire year, in which time Dorothy wrote over 70 pages of fractured hieroglyphic text. For the whole period, she had kept the few fragments that she had picked up from Hora and that she could make sense of a secret from her husband, Imam, who had grown increasingly concerned about his new wife's behavior. With Hora's tale complete, however, Dorothy worked on translating, and with every new segment she would transcribe, the story of her past life became ever more clear. After almost 30 years, she finally begun to understand the meaning behind all of her strange dreams, all of the tears she had shed as a child, and all of those frustrating years she had spent grasping for answers in the dark. Hora's story told of how Dorothy had spent her previous life as a young woman named Ben Treshit. She had been born in Abydos to common parents, her mother a vegetable seller and her father a military man who was stationed in a barracks far away from the family home. At two years old, her mother had passed away and her father, unable to care for the child, took her to an ancient temple at Qom el Sultan to the north of a large construction site which was shortly to become the Temple of Seti I. Here she lived under the tutelage of the high priest, a man named Antef, who she described as his shaven head, his immaculate clothes and his imposing figure commanded respect. He was the prototype of the Egyptian aristocrat, a very distinguished but frightening person indeed. At 12 years old, she made her vows to remain at the temple as a virgin priestess. The temple performed plays and Ben Treshit studied the drama of the resurrection and death of Osiris under the hard supervision of Antef. One evening, while singing in the garden of the temple, she happened upon Pharaoh Seti I himself, who was visiting the shrine during a visit to oversee the construction of the temple of Seti. The pair were to hit it off and Seti took a liking to Ben Treshit and during his time staying in Abydos, which he extended for as long as possible to spend as much time with the girl as he could, they had something of an illicit affair. After his calling away, however, Brentreship became aware that she was pregnant with the pharaoh's child, which was complicated on several levels. For the king, it presented obvious complications, but for Brentreship, who was a sworn virgin priestess in the temple of Osiris, this was also a dangerous position to find oneself in. Word managed to spread of the pregnancy through the temple, and when Antef became aware, he took Ben Treshit down to the heart of the tomb and questioned her, beating her to find out who the father was. She refused to give a name, but finally, as the high priest forced her palm onto the statue of Osiris, Ben Treshit succumbed to her faith and named the king. The crimes for her part, she was bluntly informed, were to be punishable by death as tradition commanded. This presented yet further problems for all parties involved, as a death sentence in ancient Egypt could only be enforced after a trial, a process which would make the secret of the pharaoh's involvement impossible to conceal. Realising the bleak situation she now faced, Ben Treshik committed suicide in order to save the face of the man she had fallen in love with. As she finished translating the story, Dorothy fell into peace. Within the 70 pages of hieroglyphics, the answers to her past life were finally hers. 
1935, Dorothy's fierce independence and bizarre eccentricities had taken their toll on the marriage. And when Imam moved to Iraq to teach English, the couple divorced. Dorothy took custody of their son and moved to a town nearby the Giza pyramids. She took a job with the Egyptologist Selim Hassam, working as his secretary and draftswoman. She observed ancient Egyptian religion and spent nights sleeping in the Great Pyramids, and until 1956, when the Pyramid Research Project was terminated, she assisted and worked with many prominent scholars and Egyptologists, both translating works and writing her own papers, becoming a respected scholar in her own right. In 1957, she returned to Abydos and took on the name of Om Seti. During a visit to the Temple of Seti, which she described as like walking into somewhere I'd lived before, the Chief of Antiquities was visiting at the same time. He had heard of Om Seti before, as had most in the area, as she was well known for both her unsettling knowledge of ancient Egypt and her eccentricities. He was keen to test Om Seti and took her to the temple. In complete darkness, they instructed her to walk to various parts of the temple and call out when she thought she was in the correct places. After six attempts to find fault with her knowledge, all failing, he gave up, thoroughly bemused. At the time of the visit, no articles on the layout of the temple had been published. In fact, even the excavators themselves hadn't catalogued the entire temple. It was also during this time that the gardens that she had told her parents that were missing from a photograph of the temple were excavated. The gardens were exactly as she had described almost 50 years prior as a young girl who had never set foot in Egypt. In 1964, Om Seti turned 60 years old and was forced by law into retirement. However, this she felt was quite unsuitable and the Department of Antiquities allowed an exception for her to keep working until 1969. She finally took retirement and worked part-time as a consultant and tourist guide for the Antiquities Department at the Temple of Seti until 1972. During this time, she claimed she knew the location of the undiscovered tomb of Nefertiti, though was reluctant to give precise details. She did, however, give a rough location close to the tomb of Tutankhamun, which ran counter to the opinion of every other scholar of the time. However, in 2015, using modern scanning technology, this theory is now gaining acceptance and looking to be very much correct. During her life in Egypt, she had assisted a vast list of respected Egyptologists in their works and cemented herself as a respected scholar and writer in her own right. In 1972, she suffered a heart attack and decided to take retirement for real this time. She lived the rest of her days in Abydos, observing the rites, traditions and systems of ancient Egyptian religion until her death on the 21st of April, 1981. To people in the West, many believe that reincarnation is a fringe belief. However, in the majority of Eastern religions and philosophies, it is a topic which is absolutely common belief, and in most a key concept, only raising eyebrows in atheistic circles. It dates back as far as the Greeks, and several ancient religions held some belief in rebirth. 
despite most Western religions holding linear belief systems, that is, that we are born, live and die and continue to live on in an afterlife. A 2009 poll showed that 24% of American Christians had professed a belief in reincarnation, and a similar poll from 1989 showed that 31% of European Catholics have likewise professed a belief in rebirth to some degree. It has been the subject of both serious, religious and non-clerical-led academic study, and yet still we find that to most it exists in the realm of the paranormal or new age. On the side of the believer, Psychiatrist Professor Ian Stevenson spent 40 years case-filing more than 2,500 children who had claimed to have past-life memories. His studies found correlations between the children's stories with real people in history, and further correlations were found whereby birthmarks and defects could be matched with wounds from previous lives, identified from autopsy photographs and medical records. There have been several documented cases of xenoglossy, the phenomena whereby a person is able to speak or write a second language they have never studied previously, and even more cases of children leading people to make discoveries of events, murderers and locations that would have been impossible for them to have known in any normal sense. Such was the case of a young Druze boy who led police to a neighbouring village, where upon walking through the residence he pointed out his own murderer. The man confessed to the crime and the boy later led police to dig up the murder weapon. Conversely, critics point to anecdotal evidence being used as empirical data and claim that in many cases our own cultural conditioning leads to spontaneous past life memories. Cryptomnesia has also been cited as responsible for cases of past life memories, a condition where past memories are forgotten and when they return to the subject, they are believed to be new memories. Oftentimes, past lives are heavily romanticised, which has obvious psychological assumptions, and in cases in the East where caste systems operate, scams are not uncommon. Whether one believes or does not believe is neither here nor there. However, there exist failings in the academic arguments both for and against reincarnation. In many cases, basic psychological factors play an important role in the debunking of cases. But how then can we explain away the cases where correlations can be found between memories and the present? If cultural conditioning and belief systems play no role, why then do we not all have such memories of past lives? Despite reincarnation being a phenomenon that many viewers rooted in the paranormal or spiritual, it is rather unique in that it has had such extensive, credible academic study and yet, the mystery endures. Specifically in the case of Dorothy Eady, as a young child, is it not unusual to have an understanding of some of the concepts of an ancient tradition that she demonstrated? Even for someone who is a bright, fast learner, learning to read ancient hieroglyphics at only 10 years old, in the time frame that she had to learn, is an impressive feat. In her later years, how did she know the things she did of the locations of the tombs and gardens? And how did she have the knowledge of the Temple of Seti that she appeared to hold before any publications on the temple had been released? The life of Dorothy Eady is fascinating, even if you were to discount all of her claims of reincarnation. However, as a case specifically concerning the phenomena, 
It is one of the most well-documented cases and even to a skeptic provides intrigue and mystery. It is one thing to hold a passing phase as a child, but entirely another to live an entire lifetime dedicated to a quest to uncovering memories of a past life with a dedication that she showed. Professor James Peter Allen, an American Egyptologist working at Brown University, said of Omseti, I don't know of an American archaeologist in Egypt who doesn't respect her. Sometimes you weren't sure whether Omseti wasn't pulling your leg. Not that she was a phony in what she said or believed, she was absolutely not a con artist. But she knew that some people looked on at her as a crackpot, so she kind of fed into that notion and let you go either way with it. She believed enough to make it spooky and it made you doubt your own sense of reality sometimes. On the topic of Omseti, Sir William Golding, author of Lord of the Flies, wrote of Egyptologists he had met during his travels in the 1980s. All were as well disposed to the mystery as any child could have wished. When the question arose of a dear lady who believed herself to have been a priestess of a particular temple, they did not dismiss her as a crackpot, but agreed that she had something. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe and sleep tight. Thanks for listening. Um, before we get into the sort of subject of Omseti, I should just do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, apologies for the late delivery of the episode this week. It's um, had a few problems last weekend with getting it out. Um, uh, there were some technical issues and there were some issues from my side. Um, and by Tuesday, I just thought, rather than sort of bang it out in the middle of the week and screw with the schedule, I'd just hold on to it for a week. And uh, yeah, so that that's sort of why it's a week late. So apologies for that. Um, but yeah, from now on, it will be back to being weekly episodes. Um, and we'll be going with the regular Sunday, every every Sunday release. So yeah, Omseti, excellent story. I, I think like, despite, you know, if you just discount all of the reincarnation stuff and just look at her as a person, she was just an amazing person. I love her independence and the way she just lived her life exactly as she wanted and, and just did everything that she, you know, her entire life was just, I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. And I think she was brilliant, an excellent woman. And so that's really what drew me into the story, actually. I started reading about various reincarnation stories because I, I wanted one to cover. And um, they were, there were lots of stories of all these like interesting children that, that had all these kind of great sort of stories, but there was nothing more than that. But with this, with this story of Omseti, it was just outside of the reincarnation it was a good story because she was such just a brilliant woman and it was quite a surprise to me that um you often find for example like sort of slightly eccentric scholars that are well respected or sort of complete crackpots that have no respect whatsoever from the majority of credible scholars you rarely get someone who is kind of as off the wall as Omseti with her ideas, but still respected as a scholar. And she sort of managed to balance that line with these kind of real kind of out there claims. But at the same time, 
garnering the respect of like every other Egyptologist. And and really, if you, I mean, I kind of skimmed her life in Egypt, but there's a great book uh, I'll put in the show notes um, called, I think it's called Finding Omseti, but I'll put it in the show notes anyway. And you don't actually have to buy it. You can actually rent it uh, or just get it on loan from uh, archive.org. And it's worth a read just to see the life of a great woman, really. Um, say, like, when she was in Egypt, the, the things she did academically were fantastic. It seemed like she supported just about every other Egyptian academic um, of the time. And, and and you think about that as well. It would have been a very male-dominated era and a very male-dominated area of study, as academics generally tends to be, even now. Um, but you know, back then even more so, and, and yet she did it, and she did it without any formal education as well. Everything was just self-taught. On her own time, she just went and read books in the library, and I just thought that that was amazing. Um, but anyway, in terms of the reincarnation, I mean, that's crazy. Like, I, I'm as far as reincarnation, like, like I, I don't, I, I put myself out there as, you know, on my website, I've already explained sort of where I'm coming from generally with these stories in that I'm quite sceptical. But I don't think I'm cynical, I'm, I'm, but I am sceptical for sure. And there is a lot of cases of reincarnation where I sort of roll my eyes because a lot of it seems to be explained away much too easily through sort of rational thinking. Um, you know, you just look at it from a psychological perspective where people kind of have these romantic backstories. You know, no one is ever the downtrodden peasant. When you read these stories, the majority tend to come from our, the concept that back in the day they were someone greater than they are now, which is just a form of escapism, I think. Um, and, you know, there's things like that. And with children, often you see their parents getting much too involved and you think, if this is your child's story and this is what your child believes, why are you getting involved? What do you, what are you bringing to the table? And, and what does, how are you benefiting from this? You know, like maybe that is a little cynical, but when you read these stories, that's how a lot of them come across. But with Om Seti, it, it was it's interesting that it spanned her entire life and at the same time whilst you know she had a apparently had this affair with this like pharaoh which does play into that kind of romanticized role and, and there's no doubting that her story was quite um sort of romeo and juliet romance almost but outside of that she dedicated so much to it and she really seemed to believe it and when she was a child, the things that she did were incredibly strange and, and quite impressive. Some of the things in her story I'm a little bit sceptical of. I mean, you have to be really, but there, 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 are, there are aspects. Um, and you can easily explain away some of it as, well, she read so many books and clearly she was on the cutting edge of the kind of knowledge of Egypt throughout a lot of her life. So she would have known a lot of what she spoke about just through her own studies. But before that, when she was a child, and you see the things that she was coming out with as a child, you think, I've got a, ne uh, a niece, nephew, I've got a nephew, and he's like six years old. And 
just the concept of when she was in the uh, the museum and she told told people to take their shoes off in the presence of the gods. Like to me, that's a concept that someone of four is not going to have. Like I've seen my nephew, and you know he struggles with the concept of taking his shoes off in a home. You know he'll do it, but I'm not sure he really understands for what reason. Like sort of culturally, that in the West we take our shoes off when we go in people's houses or, or whatever. Like. Yeah, I don't think he really grasps that concept. So for a four-year-old to just suddenly come out with that is 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 pretty weird. And then the pace that she learned hieroglyphics at is impressive, to say the least. And again, you could say, well, she had like the best teacher. She was basically getting private tuition from the man that kind of translated a lot of these hieroglyphics himself. And, and that would be true, but... I, I study a second language and it's taken me 10 years and I'm still not fluent by any stretch of the imagination and that's nothing as complicated as ancient like hieroglyphics. Perhaps now, I don't know, but perhaps if you were to study ancient Egypt and hieroglyphics now, it would be easier to learn. But I'm sure back in the 1900s, like early 1900s, it wasn't that easy. And yet she learned it and she learned it quickly and she learned it enough to be able to translate books at 10 years old that that's that was that was weird yeah i mean i'm i i think with reincarnation i feel like well i don't know i'm really not sure about this because everything tells me don't be daft it's a crazy idea there are this these cases and and they may be anecdotal but it's strange when i mean there's a lot of cases that you can just write off almost immediately as a skeptic um or as a rational thinker that you can just say, no, you know, maybe it'll be intriguing and then there'll be an aspect and you'll go, ah, oh, okay, yeah, that's where it all goes to shit, basically. Um, you know, because it, it, it'll be a kind of critical error in the story. But there are some and you just think, okay, I really don't get that. Like the Drews boy who led the um, police to find the murderer of the person that he had been re his past life. So he led the police to the murderer of the man who died in his past life. Yeah. Um, Like that story, there is apparently a a study of it in a book, but I couldn't find it. And, but he doesn't have much of a name. Everyone just calls it the Druze boy and things like this. And you think like, wow, is this just a like science fiction story almost? Like, is it all just hearsay? But there are, you know, it was apparently from this uh, Professor Stevenson's study. And so I'm sure it's written about in more detail in a book somewhere. Um, I just couldn't find it in time. But, um, and I, nor did I really want to spend the money on another book um, just for one section. He led the police to find this murderer. And you think, okay, that that's weird. But maybe he just got lucky. I don't know. That's weird. And then the guy actually sort of says, yeah, okay, holds his hands up and admits to the crime. And you think, okay, now that is weird. And then the kid then goes on to help the police dig up the murder weapon. And you think, yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that is okay. I, I don't know how to explain that away. Like rational thought doesn't come into that anymore. And that's a really interesting aspect. There's not many cases that really get you, I think, as a skeptic, but there are a enough, I think, that make you go, 
oh, okay, I'm not really sure about this one. You know, like, like okay, that's good. And uh, and and Omseti, I think, is is one of those cases. And say outside of the reincarnation stuff, she was just a brilliant woman. I think, um, brilliant, not a brilliant woman. She was a brilliant person, and I mean, gender doesn't shouldn't come into it. So yeah, that was Omseti, really. Let me know what you think. You can get in touch with me uh, on Twitter at Dark Histories. And I have uh, my own website, which is darkhistories.com. And there's an email on there. You can get in touch with me through email. Always happy to read people's emails. I got one that was pretty weird the other day, um, but I liked it. It was enjoyable. It was uh, creepy, but enjoyable. I, I would read it out if I was more um, prepared, but it just suddenly popped in my head. And um, yeah. So that's where you can get in touch with me anyway. So please let me know your thoughts. And also, I just want to say thank you to my patron. Uh, I think they would rather remain anonymous as far as I'm aware. But thank you very much for joining my patron. Uh, that's amazing. And anyone that is interested in supporting the show can do so through Patreon. You can find that. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash dark histories. Or if you go to darkhistories.com, there's a support page on there and you can find the links there and it explains a little bit more. Basically, if you don't know Patreon, it's just a, a system where you can make monthly recurring payments, like small payments of like $1, $3, $5. And by making those payments, you get sort of certain uh, little perks just from me to say thanks, basically. Anyway, that's if you want to support the show. And if you do want to support the show, that'd be amazing. Um, yeah, so from now on anyway, we'll be back to normal schedule. And yeah, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please rate and review in whichever app you use. If you use iTunes, that would be amazing because iTunes reviews really do help. As a listener, I listen to podcasts a lot and I, you know, you get sick of hearing people say, oh, please leave a review on iTunes. But as a podcaster myself, now I fully realize how important they are to a podcast. So yeah, if you can leave a review or just even a rating, that would be great. If you'd like to get in touch with me, as I say, uh, I'm most active on Twitter and that's at Dark Histories. And there's my website, which is darkhistories.com. And that's got show notes, maps, a full script and just about everything else concerning the show on there. So yeah, you can get on there. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you next week. Cheers.